Would you take the word of God with me and we'll turn our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I love that that was the song for the offertory of the old rugged cross. He's speaking about that this morning, but we'll turn to Paul's first epistle to Timothy chapter 1. You know, you might, may not be consciously aware of this, but at this very moment, we as the people of God are at war. We are at war. And the battle that we are fighting is not fought with bullets or bombs. It's fought with ideas and ideology. And we have a very real enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy. And his primary weapon is lies. His primary weapon is deception. And the only way that we can have victory in this great spiritual conflict in which we find ourselves is through the truth of God's Word. All of God's Word, all Scripture, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. This book, no matter where you turn, is going to give you the ammunition you need to fight in this spiritual battle. And it's going to give you the ammunition you need to have victory. But there are certain pages of God's Word or certain chapters or even certain verses that are especially powerful in our battle against the enemy and his lies. And this morning, the verse that we are going to look at is perhaps one of the most powerful bullets or, or beyond that, perhaps as, as believers, it's our atomic bomb where we can have total victory over the enemy. And we find it here in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. The Bible says, This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Did you notice those words? It says, this is a faithful saying. That means that what we read in this verse is trustworthy. It's reliable. It's dependable. This truth we find right here is tried and true. It will never fail you. And my friend, this world's wisdom, it will fail you. In fact, the Bible says that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The Bible says that this world and its anti-God agenda, they have professed themselves to be wise, but become fools. I know how true that is of this world. Its wisdom will fail us. Our own hearts will lead us astray. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The book of Proverbs says that he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. You and I can't rely on the world's wisdom to get us through this tumultuous life. We cannot rely on our own hearts to navigate all the difficult questions that we encounter. But we can rely on the faithful sayings 
found in this book. Not only can a person trust this verse, it's a faithful saying, it's trustworthy, it's reliable, but everyone should. This verse says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all expectation, acceptation. That means that these words are deserving that every human being accept them, appreciate them, approve them, believe them, and live by them. It's worthy of all expectation. There is not a soul on this planet that does not need, does not desperately need the truths found in this verse. And you might be sitting here today thinking, I've heard, Pastor Tyler, I've heard you quote this verse a hundred times. I'm familiar with the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you might be tired of hearing that. You might feel like you've already got that down. You understand. But there is a world full of people outside of 7768 Wedgwood Street that have never heard these truths and who desperately need them. And I would even venture to say that although many of us have heard these truths and we claim to believe them, I would not be surprised if many of us have never truly accepted them. Never truly come to appreciate all that this verse means. We, we've never come to really grasp all that it means for our everyday lives that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We've never really, if we're being honest, given these truths a hearty amen in our hearts and said, yes, I believe it's true. We've never decided to really load these truths into our spiritual gun and, and begin to wage warfare on the enemy with these truths. Or... To borrow another analogy from Scripture, the Bible compares all of our lives to a house. And this morning, every single one of us either has a solid foundation on which the house of our life is built, or a shaky foundation, a sandy foundation. And when the winds of, of various trials come, when, when the storms of life assail us, it becomes evident what we're putting our trust in and whether we're relying on these simple gospel truths or whether we're relying on something else. Every single one of us is going to uh, face or should face at some time the greatest storm of all, which is God's judgment. And those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior... The Bible says that they are going to die and after this stand before God in judgment. And the books will be opened and they will be judged according to their works. And my friend, if your life has not been built on this foundation, it's going to crumble at that critical moment when you stand before God and give account for your life. So my prayer this morning is that this faithful saying, we will come to understand it, we will come to appreciate it, and we will choose to build our lives on this truth.
And we will choose that in this daily conflict against the devil and his lies, we will wage warfare with this powerful truth. The significance of this verse is what it teaches us about the Lord Jesus. And so before we dive in to see what this teaches us about Him, let's pray. And as I pray out loud, let me urge you to pray from your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to speak directly to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that in a world full of deception and lies and confusion, that we can come to Your Word and find truth. We thank You that no matter what we might be facing this morning, what storms are assailing us, what trials we may be going through, we thank You that Your Word is like a rock. And when the floods come and they beat upon our house, we can stand firm on these truths. And we thank You that although we have a very real enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, we thank You that we can have victory through these gospel truths. But, oh, Father, sometimes we're so blind to the truth. Sometimes we are ignorant of it. Sometimes we, we fail to accept it and apply it in our lives. So we pray that this morning you would give us a fresh understanding of these simple gospel truths. And we pray that you would apply them to each and every one of our hearts and lives. And God, if we are building our lives on anything other than these truths, Lord, please reveal that to us today and may we begin building our lives on this sure foundation. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide my tongue to speak clearly. We pray that Christ would be magnified in our midst. We ask that your Holy Spirit would help each of us to listen attentively. Oh God, please do in our midst something exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think for your glory. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What does this verse teach us about the Lord Jesus? Well, number one, if you're taking notes, it tells us about His descent. His descent. Notice our text says that Christ Jesus came into the world. That means that Christ came into the world from somewhere else. You see, Jesus Christ is not just a mere man, although He is all man. He's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher, although He was the best of teachers. He's not just a prophet as Islam tries to claim. He is the very Son of God. He is God incarnate. To a group of belligerent Jews in John 8 verse 23, the Lord Jesus said, Ye are from beneath, I am from above, ye are of this world, I am not of this world world. This is the miracle that we call the incarnation. That the eternal Son of God left heaven and came to earth. He stepped out of eternity and into time. And in this very book, in chapter 3 
of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. It's a mystery. It's something that we will never fully comprehend. But the Lord Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. John 1 verse 14 says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 of that same chapter says, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. You know what that word declared means? It means to set forth something in great detail. To explain it. To expound upon it. The Lord Jesus Christ made the invisible God visible. In Colossians 1 verse 15, we read of Him that He is the image of the invisible God. Yes, the children of Israel in Old Testament times knew God out of the Old Testament Scriptures. But they had developed a lot of messed up ideas about who God was. And so God sent His Son to provide some clarification. He sent His Son as the Alpha and Omega to spell out who God was. Is. And because Christ chose to descend from heaven those 2,000 years ago, you and I can know who God is. I'm so thankful this morning that God hasn't left us in the dark to grope after God on our own and try to find Him and try to figure out who He might be. He sent His Son to reveal Himself. And you and I, when we pick up this book and we read the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we can watch Him as He walks the shores of Galilee. We can hear Him as He teaches the multitudes. We can witness His love and Son. All because Jesus Christ was willing to leave the splendor of heaven and to descend to a sin-cursed world to reveal His Father to us. And when the Lord Jesus came, what He revealed about God was far better than anything we could have imagined. Because although Jesus is the very King of heaven, He came not as an exalted sovereign, but instead came as a lowly servant. Mark 10.45, the Lord Jesus says of Himself in the third person, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. He didn't come to be served, but to minister, to serve. In the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7, we don't have time to turn there, but we read of this Son of Man as as one who came with the clouds of heaven, And he came to the Ancient of Days, his father, and they brought him near before him. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. And so when Jesus uses this term of himself 
and refers to himself as the son of man, what he is saying is, I am the king of heaven who deserves the service and worship of all mankind. And yet, although that is who I am and although that is what I deserve, I came to earth not to be served, but to serve. Philippians chapter 2 goes into more detail. And it's not far away. You can turn there if you'd like. Philippians 2 verse 5, the Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, this mindset, this attitude, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The Lord Jesus knew that He was equal with God from eternity past. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. He knew who He was. And yet, although He was equal with God, the Bible says He came to earth and made Himself of no reputation. And took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Oh, how astounding this is. That when God, the creator of the universe, the king of heaven, chose to reveal himself to us, he did not come in his glory. He did not come in his kingly robes. He did not come demanding to be served and demanding to be worshipped as he justly deserves to be worshipped and served. No, He came as a lowly, humble servant. He chose to be born in a, a barn or a stable. He chose to grow up in poverty, in the despised town of Nazareth. For over 10 years of His adult life, He lived and worked as a, worked as a simple carpenter. When he finally began his earthly ministry, what did he do? The Bible says in Acts 10.38, he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Let me ask you this morning, where did we get the fallacious idea that the Creator just wants stuff from us and won't be happy until He gets it? Where did we get that concept that God just wants to take from us? He is a God of love who when He came to earth, came to give Himself to us. He came to serve us. He came to live with us in our depravity and in our sin. He came to experience our pain. And He came to serve us. Unless you believe that awful lie that God the Father is some angry judge and Jesus Christ is some kind and merciful Savior. Jesus said to His disciples in John 14, 9, He that has seen Me hath seen the Father. So when we see the Lord Jesus kneeling at His disciples' feet and, and washing their feet, when we see Him touching putrefying lepers who were unclean, when we see Him healing the sick 
and the lame. We are seeing God the Father at work through His Son. And oh, I hope you will see this morning that the God of the universe loves you so much that He sent His Son to this earth to serve you, to minister to you, to help you. Oh, what a truth to build our lives upon that God loves us so much that He descended from heaven to serve us. But notice next in our text, not only the descent of the Lord Jesus, but also His determination. Why did He come beyond just revealing who God was and, and helping us and serving us? What was the chief reason why He came? What was He determined to accomplish here on earth? Our text says He came into the world to save sinners. This is Christ's purpose. This is the reason that He came. Although He had every right to enter this world as a conquering lion, instead, He came as a suffering lamb. Although He had every right to come and judge us for all of the crimes that we have committed against God, He came to be judged in our place. John 1.29, John the Baptist announces the arrival of the Lord Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John 3.17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. We deserve judgment. We deserve to be banished to hell for all of eternity. We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve to be punished. But God sent not His Son into the world to condemn us, but to save us. And this was His one determination. His one determination. How did Jesus bring salvation to us? Well, He kept the law that we broke. We deserve to be judged for our sins because we have broken God's holy law. The Ten Commandments, we've broken them. The greatest commandment, to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, We've broken that commandment every day of our lives. Jesus didn't. And He said in Matthew 5.17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And a couple chapters earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus told John the Baptist, Suffer it to be so now, let me be baptized, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, to do everything pleasing to God. And verse 17 of Matthew 3, lo, a voice from heaven saying, this was God the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
because Jesus Christ kept God's holy law, the Father could say of Him, I am well pleased with Him. But because you and I have broken God's law every day of our lives, God could never say of us, I am well pleased with Him or her. And so Jesus came to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to keep the law that we broke. He said in John 8, 29, I do always those things that please Him. Not only did He keep the law that we broke and lived a perfect life on our behalf, but then He took the punishment that we deserved. We deserve to die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So when the Lord Jesus Christ hung on that cross, it was not just to set an example. Or it was not just because He was misunderstood. No. That was His purpose for coming into this world. To die on a Roman cross. And to bleed for our sins. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, the stripes they placed on His back by that awful whip with which they scourged Him, by His stripes, by His blood, we are healed. All we like sheep, the Bible says, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity, the sin of us all. The Bible says He bare our sins in His own body on the tree. But that's not all. He kept the law that we broke. He took the punishment that we deserved. And then He rose from the dead to take us where we could never go ourselves. In the Old Testament, there are many chapters on, on the, the traditions of the Jewish people and the priesthood and the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was where the Shekinah glory presence of God dwelt. The tabernacle was, was instituted by God so that he, he could dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the blood of an innocent animal would be slain. And the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, beyond the veil, into the very presence of God with the blood. And the Ark of the Covenant would be there with the cherubim representing the cherubim in heaven. And there the priest would offer the blood of an innocent animal to atone for the people's sin. And the Bible uses a word called propitiation and says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's the same word that is used for mercy seat, for the, for the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And here's what you need to understand that all of this symbolizes when that holy God who wanted to dwell among His people looked into that Ark of the Covenant, inside was the law. The law that God's people had broken. 
And when God looked at that broken law and should have judged His people, instead He would see the blood of the innocent animal and the place that should have been for judgment became a mercy seat because God saw the blood. And the Bible says in Hebrews 10, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, into the very presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What you need to understand from that is that we as sinful human beings could not dare enter the presence of a holy God in prayer or in heaven without our sins covered by the blood of Christ. Without our sins forgiven. And that righteous life that Jesus lived, do you realize that because He kept the law perfectly, because He pleased God in all things, that His righteous life just like the law, actually condemns us. A lot of people want to say, I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a good person. And you might seem like a good person compared to an individual next to you who might look worse, but you're not being compared to the people next to you. We are being compared against the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ's perfect and righteous life. And just like the veil in the tabernacle or in the temple barred entrance into the presence of God, Jesus Christ's righteous life condemns us because we have not attained to that perfect standard. But when He died for our sins and atoned for them with His blood, His life which had previously condemned us now became the way for us to enter into the presence of God. And that's why the Bible says that His body is the veil which was rent so that we could now enter the presence of God. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners? And we've seen this morning His descent, that He left heaven to become a servant. We have seen His determination that His one goal in coming to earth was to live a perfect life for us and atone for our sins on the cross and then rise again to appear in the presence of God as our representative. His one determination was to save us from our sin. And lastly this morning, I want you to see His display. His display. We're living 2,000 years after the Lord Jesus died on the cross. None of us can physically witness the events of Jesus' life and we can't see Him hanging on the cross for our sins. But we can see the lives of people that have been dramatically transformed because Christ came into this world to save them. And here in our text, the Apostle Paul is writing, probably the greatest Christian who has ever lived, and look what he says at the end of verse 15. He says, 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I, the one that everyone looks at as one of the greatest Christians who's ever lived and as this wonderful, awesome missionary, I am the chiefest, I am the greatest of sinners. And in that same passage, in verse 13, he describes what he was before Christ saved him. He says, I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, he was a man named Saul of Tarsus, and he persecuted Christians. He blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ. He hated Christ. But verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, this is Paul speaking, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern, for an example to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. You know what Jesus Christ did with the life of Saul of Tarsus? He made it a glorious display of His grace and said there's no sinner that's too bad. There's no sinner who's gone too far. There's no one who's who lived too wretched a life to be saved by my grace. And if Jesus Christ could save a man like Paul who persecuted Christ, he can save anyone. And the Apostle Paul, after having been saved, changed everything in his life. He went from persecuting Christ to being his servant. He went from blaspheming Christ's name to doing everything he could to magnify Christ's name. And he devoted his life to display God's grace. He devoted his life to let the whole world know I was a sinner, but Jesus saved me. I deserved hell, but Jesus loved me. I deserve nothing but judgment, but Christ gave me mercy, and He can do the same for you. As we close this morning, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all expectation. And every single one of us should accept and approve and and build our lives on these truths. But here are some ways that we can know whether or not we have accepted the simple gospel. First, you know that you've accepted and believed and built your life upon this faithful saying if there's been a time in your life where you admitted that you were a sinner who needed to be saved. The Lord Jesus said, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous or the self-righteous, the people who think themselves righteous. I didn't come to call them, but sinners to repentance. For a person to be saved by the Lord Jesus, they have to admit their need of salvation. Has there been a time in your life where you fell down before God and recognized, 
I'm a sinner deserving to be judged. If you haven't, you have not accepted this faithful saying. Another indication that we have accepted this is you recognize that you are a big sinner. No better than anyone else. I'm fearful for those young people who've grown up in church and by God's grace have been protected from so much sin and evil and do not know all that they have been saved from and take this great salvation for granted and have no concept of how lost they would be without Christ. And if you don't see yourself like Paul as the chief of sinners, if you don't see yourself and say, if people really knew what was in my heart, if people really knew what I was capable of, if people really knew how selfish I was, they'd have no problem agreeing that I am the chief of sinners. If you and I can't see ourselves like that, it proves that we've never really encountered Christ. Because when you come into the presence of the Holy Son of God in all of His glory, you know how you'll respond? By falling down like Saul on the road to Damascus. Blinded by the light of His glory and His holiness. And you'll say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And you'll recognize that I don't deserve the privilege to get to serve the Son of God with my life. It's only by His grace that He would let me serve Him. It's only by His grace that He would let me come to a church to hear this gospel. It's only by His grace that He would give me the Bible to read on a daily basis. It's only by His grace that He would give me the privilege of preaching this gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. For I am a sinner. And if you and I have never come to the point where we truly see ourselves like that, We've never accepted this saying. And lastly, you know that you have accepted and believed and begun to build your life on this faithful saying, on this gospel truth, when the greatest desire in your heart is to be a display of God's grace. When the greatest desire of your hearts is to so manifest Christ Jesus, that your life becomes an instrument of salvation to rescue other sinners. I don't know if there's anything that reveals the selfishness and the unbelief of our hearts like our indifference to the needs of lost sinners around us. And how we can go day after day after day after day without telling people of the glorious God of heaven who came down to earth to save us. And how we can let people pass us by and we can let people work with us and we can let them live with us without hearing 
this glorious gospel. When we have begun to believe and build our lives on this faithful saying, what we will want more than anything else is to be like Paul, a display of God's grace. Where we will be willing like Paul to descend from our pride and yield our lives to the Lord Jesus and humble ourselves as his servant. Where we will follow the Lord Jesus' example and make ourselves a servant. And where the one determination of our lives will be to save sinners and be a display of God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there really are no words adequate to thank you for all that you did in sending your Son to us. God, however you have spoken to us this morning, we pray that you'd help us to respond. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has never acknowledged their sin and their desperate need of salvation, we pray that today they will cry out to you from their heart and ask you to save them. And we pray that you would help us believers who often can become so self-righteous and so selfish and help us to see ourselves as we really are, as desperate sinners who've been saved by your grace. And I pray that we would determine to follow the example of the Lord Jesus and determine with every fiber of our being to live a life that just wants to see sinners saved. Well, God, help us to respond in these few moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As the piano plays, however God has spoken to you, would you respond? If you're sitting here this morning and you're not saved, you've never called on Christ's name from a position of humility and and ask his forgiveness, ask him to save you. Oh, don't let another moment go by without calling on him. The Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're a Christian here this morning, would you devote your life to be a display of God's grace? Would you determine to get in God's word every day and let him reveal to you his love?